All right, we are uh, not in John today, and the reason is, and I feel like I always have to, oh, please forgive me, um, we talked a little bit about Philippians chapter 2, about Jesus Christ, and that Philippians chapter 2, that whole chapter is about transformation. And I alluded to it and talked a little bit about it a week or so ago, and it just, I, it was on my mind, and so all of a sudden, I was just like, we, we need to talk more, and we're going to talk about that. I think this is a good place in the book of John. We've just talked about the amazement that we have at Christ, the wonder of Jesus Christ. We talk about five things that is amazing about Christ, that is a wonder. And every one of those five things, if we're fairly honest, every one of those five things we're pretty accustomed to. And so at first blush, it doesn't seem quite like a wonder to us. It doesn't seem so amazing to us. But when we try to put ourselves back into into people's shoes in those days, Jesus was speaking things that were incredible. They were wonders. They were amazing. And we have to kind of enter into that to kind of re, in a sense, relive it so that we begin to to understand a little bit of the wonder and the amazement. And I, I started to think about that because all of that derives from the fact that Jesus Christ came to earth. He came to earth. God took on human flesh. You think what a step down that is. God put on human flesh. He came to earth, and all of it derives from that. And so in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5, I'm going to read that to you. It won't be on the screen. We'll go over it verse by verse, but I want to read that to you. It says, so if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, or which was in Christ Jesus. All right, that's Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. You know, in our day right now, because this, what this is talking about, this is talking about a transformation that brings peace into a life. And in our day right now, if there's one thing that's a shortage, it's peace. In our world there's a shortage of peace. In our nation, there's a shortage of peace. Our culture, even in, unfortunately, in churches right now, the the, uh, number of churches that are splitting mainly over political issues is exploding right now because there's no peace. Where do we get this peace? Where do we get this transformation that starts inside and works its way out? Because in different times in history, people have always thought we were on the verge of real, lasting world peace. The Romans, all the way back to the Romans, the Romans said we've instituted what's called Pax Romana, the the, the peace of Rome over the whole known world. And it was enforced through centurions living amongst every person everywhere all over the world. It was enforced by the rule of law. And their goal was this is going to last for a thousand years. And it didn't. It didn't. The Pax Romana started breaking up. At the turn, and there's been other times too in history, but at the turn of the 20th century, we fought the war to end all wars, World War I. It was the war to end war. And I I mean, we say people really believe that. They believe this war is going to end it all. It's, It's so horrific. It's worldwide. Millions died. Everyone will go, whoa, this is stupid. No more of this. 
and it was the war to end all wars. And what did it do? It's, it actively laid the groundwork for World War II, a war that was more horrific, a war that more people died, <clears throat> a war that was totally wor- wor- worldwide. In the end of the 1980s, a lot of academics and educators thought, now, now we've reached it. It's the end of the Soviet Union. Communism has fallen. We're going to end all this fighting. And fighting has continued. Fighting among nations. Fighting among ethnic groups. Fighting among individuals. So the question then becomes, why? Why do we fight? That's the question we have to ask. That's the question we have to understand. What is the cause of this fighting that is going on? What is the cause of the fighting that's going on even in churches where people name the name of Christ? And Paul is addressing this here. He's talking about disunity. What brings it on? What brings on disunity? How do we stop it? How do we cure it? How do we change it? Now, I want to tell you, a lot of times if you see disunity amongst other people, and it's not necessarily happening in your life, it seems easy to fix. If you're on the outside, it seems really easy. Just stop doing that. Just start doing that. And and it, it seems pretty simple. I remember the first time many years ago where I, I, I was counseling a couple, and I was pretty young, and I was new in the ministry, and, uh, and they, they said, we need to talk to you, and they came in, and they sat down, and, and she said, he's always putting me down. He's always saying things like this, and she listed off a couple of things. And I looked at him, and I said, you need to stop saying that. It seems pretty easy, right? Just don't say those things, and it'll be fine. And he said, how can I? She keeps doing this to me. And he listed off something. And she keeps doing this to me. And he listed off something. It makes me say those things. So I said, if you stop doing this and that, he will stop saying this and this and that, and you'll be fine. And she said, how can I? He keeps doing this. I didn't mention this earlier, but he keeps doing this. And that makes me do those things to him, which makes him say that, that, that to me. And I just remember sitting there going, "Uh uh-oh, uh-oh. Everything, every time I get into a situation, it just takes me back to Star Wars, the pit of Sarnak where people endure endless pain and never die. That was my office right then, right? <laughs> that was what I was feeling. And, and, and I've grown since then. I've seen how difficult it is when there is not peace in a situation, how to bring peace back. And it's all around us. It's the history of this world. We don't have to go back far. Look at the Bosnians and the Serbs. We went through all of that in the 80s and into the 90s. You know, all of that started from a battle. One specific battle, 550. Well, now it's like 580, almost 600 years ago. One battle laid that, and they all, they, both sides, they look back to that battle and they say, that's what caused it. That's what caused it. If you, if you look at, and it's, I'm not picking on any particular people, I'm not picking on any particular religion, but if you look at Sunni and Shia Muslims, that goes back to a very specific time and place over ascension, and a battle was fought 1,300 years ago, almost 1,400 years ago now. 
And it's still going on now. They're still fighting the battle between Sunni and Shia. We see it playing out in Yemen with Iran and and Saudi Arabia arming their proxies, fighting the same battle. And if it doesn't take me back to Star Wars, it takes me back to Star Trek, right? Great theological in, a, in a, one of the earliest, when the Star, Trek, uh, the Star Trek first came out in the 60s, I just, I loved it. I just ate it up. And they had one called The Last Battleground. And this is a picture from it. And it was a fight between two races. And I remember Kirk getting so exasperated and saying, what is wrong with you? You look the same. And the guy goes, are you kidding me? I'm black on the right, white on the left. He's black on the left, white on the right. We hate each other. We can't stand each other. This is a picture of the human condition. So what does Paul say? First, I want you to see the goal of the passage here. I want you to see what Paul is trying to tell us. He says this in verses 1 through 4. And when we start in verse 1, it says, So if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. So Paul is going to start laying out, this church is having problems with disunity, and he's going to start laying out, how do we deal with this? How do we strive for peace and interpersonal relationships? That's the goal. And so he asks, he says things for, in a sense, four rhetorical questions. They're all based on knowing Christ as your Savior. They're only true if you know Christ as your Savior. And they're listed separately, but they're so intertwined, it's hard to separate them. Because they simply are different ways almost of saying similar things about each other. He says, he says first is, is if there's any encouragement of Christ. And literally he's saying, if there's any encouragement in Christ, and of course there is. Because he's basing this on, on the fact that he's assuming every one of them know Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so that word encouragement is the word paraclesis, which means to come alongside to comfort <clears throat> to come alongside, put an arm around somebody, to come alongside and help shoulder a person's burden. It's about encouraging. It's about someone who comes alongside of you for the purpose of helping, encouraging, and comforting. And it's interesting because it's used a number of times the idea of somebody telling you the truth about you in a good way. Somebody who's willing to say the truth about you in love. See, because there's a the difference, right? That's what's key. We all know people who will tell the truth. We all know people who leave wreckage as they walk through life and they leave beat up people. And you say, why did you say that to that person? I'm only telling the truth. I say, yeah, but you said it with a club. And you beat them over the head. And they're hurt now. And so he's talking about this idea of someone who's willing to come alongside you and speak the truth in love because they love you. It's based on relationship. And this is what's going to be key through this. It is all based on a relationship, on a relationship with Jesus Christ. It's the idea that we have Christ as our comforter. We have Christ as, our, as the truth teller in our life. And how does he do that? Mainly, he does it through his word. He tells us the truth. This is why it can be a problem for us. I don't like that. So I don't, I don't like that part. Well, that's the problem. You, if you start cutting and pasting, you, you're, you're, in a dangerous, you're in a dangerous place. Okay, so the first thing is, if there's any comforter. The second one is, 
he says, if, if there's any encouragement. And the second one is, is, if there's any comfort. And he repeats paraclesis, that same word again. He just uses it in, a different, in a, just a tiny different way. And it's this idea that it brings hope. It's, it's a love that comes alongside of us. It's a love that tells the truth, but it's a love that gives us hope. It gives us hope. It doesn't tell us, you know what the problem with you is? <clears throat> Excuse me. The problem with you is you do this and then walk away because that leaves you thinking, is that fixable? No, no. A love that gives hope comes alongside and says, look, there is a problem here, but there is a solution to this. How can I help you? How can I walk with you in this? How can I shoulder part of this load for you? What can we do? It's that idea there's any comfort from love, and of course there is. It's a comfort that brings hope because this is what the love of God is. You know, it comes so, it's so easy for us to say, God loves you. It's such a trite phrase, but you think about it. God loves me. God loves you. He loves you more than any living being has ever loved you in your life. That's how much he loves you. That's how much he loves you. Sometimes when I'm praying for my kids, I say, God, I know you love my kids, but I love them so much, and I'm so worried, or I'm so heartbroken, or I'm so happy, whatever it is. And then I'll always try to remember to tack on, and God, I understand you love them more than I do, because he does. We take it for granted, and we don't understand what a wonder, how amazing, how awesome that is. The God of the universe is intimately in love with you. And it's my favorite illustration. Always, always, when you pray, heaven stops. God shushes. I don't know if God shushes. I don't know how God does that stuff, but everybody's quiet because his child is talking to him. And that's the most important thing. I love it. Um, I love history, you know. And so in, in, uh, when Abraham Lincoln in the middle of the Civil War, and he was in the middle of a war council uh, with members of his cabinet and, and, and uh, military, Navy, and Army generals, and his little son Todd stuck his head in the door and said, Daddy, and, and, and one of the soldiers by, that were by each of the doors, he was like, no, 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 no. And Abraham Lincoln said, no, that's my son. Let him in. Come on, come here. And he bent over, and his son started talking in his ear, and he talked to him, and he looked at him, and he held him, and he said, okay, okay. And he scampered off. That's you when you start to pray, and God says to everyone around him, shh, my daughter wants to talk to me. This is now the most important thing in the world to me. Now, I don't know how that works with millions of people praying at the same time, but it does. It does. And he gets down and he gets face to face with you and he says, what is it? What is it? I want to know. So he says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, of course there is. If there's any comfort from love, of course there is. And if there's any participation of the Spirit, and of course there is. And he uses this word uh, when it says, 
participation. This is uh, the word that, that he's already used once already. He, he, it's, well, it's a word for fellowship. It's, it's a word that he uses all the time. It's this idea of a close connection. It's an idea of mutual goals. And this is what's interesting to me. This word has the idea of liking each other. Liking each other. What an interesting thing to think about. You and the Spirit. You have this close connection. You have mutual goals. And the Spirit likes you. The Spirit likes you. You know, sometimes I get weird. I think about this. I, I, I can get comfortable. Not comfortable. I don't know. I, I can get used to thinking God loves me. But it's a whole nother step for me to think that God might actually like me. Because a lot of the time, I don't like me. And I'm the best friend I got. Right? I'm just, I just not so sure about it. And this is what he's telling us. He doesn't just love you. He likes you. I've re- been reading this book on prayer. It emphasizes the inf- intimacy that we have with God. It emphasizes that over and over and over, that God loves you, that God likes you. There's an intimacy. He's interested in what you have to say and how that should impact our prayer life. Because he doesn't just put up with you and love you because he's God. He likes you. He likes being with you. He likes working with you. He likes working through you. How cool is that? God wants to work with you and work through you to impact people's lives. And we were talking about this last week. And when we see how amazing Christ is, what it does is it eliminates boredom in this world because everything you do matters. Everything you do counts. There's never throwaway time in your life. And so he says, if there's any encouragement of Christ, of course there is. If there's any comfort from love, of course there is. And if there's any participation of the Spirit, and of course there is. If there's any affection and sympathy, and of course there is. All these are rhetorical. There is a love for one another, a concern for one another. And he says, he's saying, if you know Christ, you have this. You have felt this at times. This idea of loving other people, people who you would not normally love. One of the things, and this isn't a plug for it, but one of the things I love about small groups is that you get with people who you would not necessarily normally ever associate with in your life. You are only there because you know Jesus Christ and you want to grow together. And what happens? You begin to love people that apart from Jesus, you would have never met. They would have never come into your life. I think over the years of of the people that I've had the incredible pleasure of knowing, of working with, of serving with, that I never would have known apart from Jesus Christ. What an incredible blessing. And this is what he's talking about. He's saying all four of these things that he's listing there, there are results of my relationship with Jesus Christ. They are gifts from God. This is a way to think about it. These are gifts from him to his children. He says, I've given you encouragement in Christ. I've given you comfort with love. I've given you a participation in the Spirit. I've given you affection and sympathy in your life. He says, so complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. So he's saying, okay, if there's these four things, 
which they are, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, these are a part of your life, then do this. This is what flows from it. Complete my joy. Paul says, this brings great joy to me to see you living this way. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Now, Paul is saying, so on the basis of these gifts God gave you, here's how you respond to one another in difficult times. It's easy when things are going well. It's how do we respond in the difficult times? That's where the rubber meets the road. He says, having the same mind, that's the idea of minding the same things, figuring out what's important and working together on them. Again, I said it last week, it's a tragedy that very often we are very concerned about things that God does not care about. What a horrible way to spend part of your life, worrying about things that God says, this, I have no, no concern about this. I don't care about that at all. And he uses this word, love. Make my joy, complete my joy by being of the same mind. He says, having the same love. The word have there means to maintain it. It's a constant process. Love for one another, it needs to be worked on. Starting in a local body of believers and then moving outward. Because that's the early church. What did they, people say? <clears throat> they said, behold how they love one another. We can see it. We can see it. And there will be differences in a church body, and love needs to be worked on. This is why he's telling this, because they're having problems. This book, the, 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 the church of Philippi, has the least amount of criticism of any of the books that Paul wrote. Most of the other books, especially if you want to, I mean, you read 1 Corinthians, it's just one giant problem after another. The church of Philippi, he doesn't do that, but he does say they have one. They have disunity, and he says that's an important one. There's some disunity there. You, all, you, have, your, you have your doctrine, right? Y'all look great, you're doing super, you're praying, you're working, but there's disunity, and this grieves the heart of God. He's saying, so work on it, because it has to be worked on. So complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love. Then he says, being in full accord. Full accord is this idea of being united together, united in spirit. We have a deep unity that cannot be broken in spite of the differences that may rise. This this means that our, our salvation is, is a stronger bond often than we realize. It's at a whole different level. Because the whole point he's telling us is he's saying, in spite of your differences, you can worship together. You can praise God together. You can study his word together. You can pray together. You can give together. You can serve together. In spite of whatever differences you have, you can do that. And then this is interesting in this verse. If you, if you look at verse 2, he, say, he says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind. And at the very end, and then he says, being in full accord and of one mind. He uses the same word twice. Now, it has a little bit different ending. It has a little bit different, little bit different twist to it. But he's trying to emphasize something to him. He's setting up this idea as they're reading that, that there is this mindset. There is this mind. There is this foundational truths that we stand on that are, are so important. And here, in, in, in the first time he uses the word mind, he emphasizes the goal of oneness. And this time, it's, he uses it, he puts a little different ending on it. It's this idea of working at it, working at it, working at it. It's something that has to be constantly maintained. I, uh, I, w- I would love to have a beautiful yard. And I know my neighbors would wish that I had a 
better looking yard than I do. But you have to work on your yard a lot. Mowing and trimming and cutting. Oh, man, that's so much. And I just, I always have better things to do than working on my yard. I mean, even if it's sleeping or playing video games, everything is better than World of Warcraft is way better than my yard. Let me tell you, Star Trek, Star Wars, they're always available. Yeah, that grass will grow on its own. He's saying here, this is something that requires constant work. You constantly have to be on top of this. Actively worked on so that there is a unity of purpose. Now, um, I'm going to jump to point two now because this is what Paul does. So point one, we're looking at, and then we're going to jump to point two, and then we're going to come back to point one in a couple of the verses that come after where I have point two. And, and again, I know people say, that's a terrible outline. And here's the deal. I'm, I'm just going to let the Scripture make the outline rather than make my outline and shoehorn Scripture into it. And I've seen that happen a lot, and I don't, I don't want to be too critical, but I don't think it's the right way. So here we go. Goal of the passage, verses 1 through 4. But point 2, the cause of the problem is verse 3a. It's just this little part in 3, and this has so much in it. I I love this part. It says, do nothing from rivalry or conceit. And the reason why I love it is those two words, rivalry and conceit, are incredibly loaded words. They have tremendous meaning that are applicable to us because these are a brilliant summary of fighting that happens between individuals, that happens between groups, that happens between nations. They come out of this. All right. So the first word there is conceit. The root, it's, 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 it's this idea of the root cause. It, it's, it's the disease. It's the motive. It, the word is erythria. It means, it means a rivalry. And it's very interesting because this word, um, this word for rivalry, the first word is rivalry, not conceit. I don't know why I said that. This word for rivalry is actually a word that often is used very positively. It's a very positive word for someone who's an incredibly hard worker. You know, you see somebody who's working on their lawn every day, and you go, wow, that's a hard worker. He's a dope, but he's a hard worker. I'll give him that, right? Okay? And, and, but if you, if you put it in a negative connotation, it means someone who works very hard for their own selfish advantage. It's someone who thinks all the time is what is best for me. It's all about me, 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 me. It's someone who thinks only about themselves or anyone who's just very close to them. I had a person tell me one time in the middle of COVID, I'm making sure my family is safe and I don't care about anyone else. And I just kind of gently said, that's probably not the best way. Yes, you need to take care of your family. But God loves everyone else just as much as he loves your family. That's not my responsibility. Yes, they are. Yes, they are. And, and this word erethea is this idea of someone who works very hard, totally for themselves. So that, and this is what happens when you do this, everyone else becomes an opponent that's not for you. And so then fights, arguments, they happen at the drop of a hat because of that. You know, scientists are always interested in, in, uh, in what, what governors, governs our relationships with other people. This, there's tons of studies. I've read some of them, but there's, just, there's thousands of studies on this. But one thing that's very interesting is they'll boil it down to two things. They said, this is what will govern your relationship with other people. Your needs 
all right? Your needs or the truth. In other words, you're going to run into situations with other people, and you may not like what the truth is, so your needs then trump the truth because you're thinking about you. It's all about me. It's all about my family. That's what's most important, no one else. And so your needs trump the truth. So you can understand the truth through your needs, or you can understand your needs through the truth. This is, this is very key, and it has tremendous implications in our lives. When we understand the truth through our needs, then we shape the truth to fit our needs. But when our need, and, and, and what happens then is, I shape the truth to fit my needs, and so my needs declare to me what the truth is. I am right because I need it. This is my truth. When this happens then, you are allowing your needs to, to, to determine what the truth is. And when that happens, you take everything personally. Any disagreement with someone else suddenly becomes about me, my pride, my reputation, my relationships. How does this make me look? How does this make me feel? And suddenly then what happens is you become unreasonable, unable to understand other people's points of view. This is what's going on in our culture. People can't understand other people's points of view, and so it polarizes. It pushes people into camps because they're unable to understand what other people are thinking. But if I understand my needs through the truth, then what that does is that puts my needs in their place underneath the truth, subject to the truth, not the master of the truth. And this is how this can play out in Scripture, and and we we talk about this a lot. I I read something, and I think, I don't don't really like that. So I I don't follow it. I don't use it. I don't listen to it. It's not truth to me anymore because I don't like it. So what happens? My needs, my wants now have trumped the truth. If I read the truth and I go, I don't like that. But if this is God's word, maybe there's more here than I realize. Maybe this is a deeper truth than I am quite understanding, even though on my first look, I don't like it. So I'm going to yield to it. I'm going to say, God, I will yield to you. That means I'm subordinating my needs to the truth. And interestingly, sociologists have seen that happening in all walks of life with all kinds of things. People who put their needs above truth and then people who are willing to subordinate their needs to the truth. And this, this idea, this word rivalry, this is what's wrapped up in this word. This is why this is an incredible word, so deep. And this spirit of rivalry can infect everything. It can infect even the best of churches. It's happening in this church. That's why he's telling them to stop doing it. And the second word there is the word conceit. Um, Some versions will say vain conceit. The King James, actually the King James version says vain glory, which is dead on, dead on to that word. It's the word, it's the word kinodoxia. I'm gonna put it up for you just because I thought it would be fun. There it is in the Greek and there's the English transliteration underneath. See, kinodoxian. Okay, so it's a compound word. Kino is the word that has this idea of being empty-handed and grasping for things. I want that. I need that. I wish I had that. He has that. I want it. It's grasping. That's kino, 
all right? It's the idea, you don't have it, you're empty-handed, and so you grasp for things, something that you want because you want doxa. That's the word for glory. You want glory. I don't have that. I want it because I'll feel better. I'm more important, you know? Um, Another theologian that I like is Bill Manning, and one of his favorite theological movies is the Rocky series, <laughs> which I'm like, yeah, that's stupid. Star Wars, Star Trek, yes, but Rocky, come on. But one great place in that movie is when he's asked, why are you doing this? You're going to get annihilated. And he goes, if I can just go the distance. And basically what he says is, I'll be somebody. I won't be a nothing. I won't be a nobody. What is that? Kinodoxia. He's grasping. I got to just go in the ring and I just got to last 12 rounds and I will be important because I lasted 12 rounds with the chin. Now, we all know the story, but he was thinking beforehand, I just don't want to get knocked out. I just don't want to quit before the end because if I, if I make it the whole way, I'll be somebody. I'll be somebody. So kinodoxia is this idea starving for glory, grasping for glory, a glory grasper. Doxa is the word glory. It means weight. It means things that matter, something that's incredibly important, the glory of God. And so kinodoxian, a person who has it, doesn't have it, and wants it desperately, and tries in all sorts of ways. And we see this in our culture, right? We see all the different ways people try to be something or somebody. And it's easy to pick on different ones. And, and, and so I don't want to, but we see it with, with influencers. We see it, you know, with all these different, and, and whether it's looks, whether it's, you know, weight, whether it's money, whether it's power, there's all kinds of things that people grasp for. Whether it's education, whatever it may be, people grasp for it. Relationship. So doxa is glory. Kino is empty-handed grasping. You know, sometimes after church in the past, we've sung the doxology, praise God from whom all blessings flow, flow, (laughs) flow, praise him, all creatures here below, praise him. You guys know it, right? That's the doxology. What is that? That is a song that gives glory, doxa, to God, glory to God. And human beings struggle. What do we struggle with? We struggle with the fear of not mattering. This is why kinodoxia is such an important thing to us. We want to matter. Everybody wants to matter in something. In something. What is the worst thing that can happen to us? Not to be opposed. Not to be hated. The worst thing is to be ignored. The worst thing is to not matter. To not matter. To be someone that people look at and says, who cares? We don't want to be insignificant. We don't want to be marginal. We don't want to be overlooked. We want to, be, we want to matter. We want to be in the center of something, of something, whatever it may be. We want to be in the center of something. And so we act big. We act important in whatever it may be, something very small. But if, I want, you know, if I'm in a small pond, I want to be the big fish. In that, in that same book on prayer, the, that I was reading, the author was talking about the fact that the God of the universe cares deeply about him. You are his child. You are his treasure. Ephesians 2.10, 
says you are his masterpiece that he's creating. What is it saying? You matter. See, we all desperately want to matter, and that's not bad. We're made that way. We're made to matter. We've just lost it. Why? Where does that come from? The Bible has a theological answer, and the answer is sin. Sin robbed us of our glory. We had glory, and we decided to be our own master. We decided, I will take charge. I know what's best. Thank you, God, but I got this one. And that's what did it. We decided to find our own glory. And so at the very basic level, the essence of sin is self-centeredness. It makes you selfish. It makes you proud. It makes you self-absorbed. When you always talk about yourself and your issues and your wants and your needs and what happens, what happens? Have you, I mean, we all have experienced someone who always talks about themselves. You, you, start, and you start realizing they haven't asked me one question about me. They just go on and on about themselves, their needs, their wants, their struggles, their this, their that. Da, da, and, and what happens? You start not paying attention to them. You stop ignoring them because they are becoming boring and forgettable, which is the exact thing no one wants. This desire for glory in us is an echo in our heart. We know it's true. We know we need it. And so we try to get it, get it back. We become glory graspers to get back what, what we lost. That's why if you, go to the, if you go to Matthew chapter 7, there's this devastating moment where Jesus looks at people and he says, get, you're away from me. I never knew you. To be ignored is the worst thing that can happen. To be ignored for eternity is horrific. And we do it to people. We ignore those we have no interest in. We overlook the people that we don't understand. We make fun of people if we don't understand what they're, what they're saying or why they say what they say. When we disagree with people, we tend to pay no attention to them. This is our condition. And so Paul, he says, he's, he's with this little, this, little, uh, this little verse here, just five words, do nothing from rival six, uh, rival, rivalry or conceit. He uses two words that he drops on them. It's like a bomb, right? I mean, it's just, it's just like <laughs> rivalry and conceit. You dropped a bomb on me. He drops a bomb on them, and what does it do? It shakes them because he's saying this, you have become this. He says, you have become people who are rivals. You've become glory graspers, empty-handed, grasping, grasping. Okay, I, can't, I know this is me. I see that. And you know what I always think of? Schmeagol. Grasping, grasping, wanting his precious because it makes him feel that he has something. All right? So, one, the goal of the passage, verses 1 through 4. Two, the cause of the problem, verse 3a. One, again, the goal of the passage Verses 1 through 4 continued, all right? So now we go to verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry empty, or, or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Four, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And so now what is he saying? He's saying this next step, if, if rivalry or con, and conceit are things that we struggle with, if we, are, if we are those glory graspers, all right? So what do we do? He says, first of all, he says, in, in humility, so he's saying humility is a key, count others more significant. That word significant is an interesting word. It's a compound word, 
And, and it's a word that was used where in, in Roman society, people would figure out who's up, who's down. It, it, it was, it was, they had like a process for this where they, where they figured out who were the top, who were the bottom, and where, where were the levels in between. So it was a word that established, established who you were. It, it's kind of another grasping word, actually, because it's to figure out who you are above is the key. You're figuring out who's below me. You're not figuring out that much who's above you. You're figuring out who's below me. And it was totally normal in, in Roman society. In fact, this was a very positive word in Roman society. In Roman society, people would throw big meals, big dinners with lots of entertainment. We've talked a little bit about this, but, but just to, to flesh it out a little bit for you, what they would do is oftentimes, say, a, a guy who's fairly well off, he would throw a dinner and he would choose all the people who were below him to come to that dinner. And there would be entertainment. I mean, we've talked about this. Everybody there would get a woman who would be their woman for the night, and they would have entertainers, and they would have this, and they would have that, and all this kind of stuff. And it would be incredibly expensive. I mean, it's hard for us to imagine the amount of money that would be spent on that. And the whole thing would be, in Roman society, you go to somebody's meal, somebody's, and now you are in their debt. You have to do the same thing for them, or you owe them a favor. See, this is how politics still kind of works this way today, but that's how it worked back then. Most of the people they'd invite could never repay them financially to to a comparable dinner. So now they owed them a favor, and they would collect those favors later when they needed help, right? And so this is what would happen. This is how, and so what they'd use is this word they use for here, use for significance, is that's how you figured out who would not be able to pay you back so that they would owe you a favor. You would establish their significance compared to yours. Now, think about what this verse means then. Verse 3, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Count the person on the corner with a sign is more significant than yourself. Count the person that you tend to overlook. Count the person who's doing where you work, the lowest job, as more significant than yourself. See, he's telling him, I want to reorder this world. I want to change the world because in Roman society, you would invite people to dinner not because you cared about them, but because you wanted them to become enslaved to you. You wanted them under your thumb. And here was the thing, and this reflects too, if you read scripture now about dinners more, if you declined the dinner, you owed twice as much because you snubbed the host. So you can't decline, but to go is to be under someone's thumb. And you had all these dinners at all kinds of levels as people tried to get favors to move up and to to change and that type of thing. And it was all about people deciding, this is who's important, this is who's not important, this is who's important. This, it was totally throughout that society. And he says, flip it. Everybody's important. Everybody's important. Everybody's important to God. And he's saying, everybody should be important to you. And I, and I want to tell you, this was applauded in Roman society. The idea of building yourself up was considered a virtue. The idea of getting people underneath you was considered a virtue. But it was done to rope them into your debt. And we look at others. He says, I want you to look at them. 
I want you to look at others and think of, how can I serve them? How can I serve my neighbor? And it's interesting because he, said, he understands the problem that can come with this. And so he says, in humility, count others more significant than yourselves, but let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. See, he's not saying just put yourself, you know, throw everything you have, giving to others, serving. He's saying, no, balance this. Because the problem is it's not balance, right? I mean, if we're honest, the time I spend serving myself, well, the time I spend serving others is insignificant compared to the time I spend serving myself. And so here Paul, God, through Paul, is speaking to us and saying, let's start to balance this a little bit. Let's start serving others. Let's look at others as more important than ourselves. That's really hard to do. And he's saying, and this is key, not, don't look out for yourselves or just people close to you, because what happens is when you do that, when you begin to look out just for yourself and those close to you, it becomes kinodoxia, it becomes vain glory, glory grasping, because you're focused only on what you want. Now, some people take it to the opposite extreme, and this can happen. Some people play the martyr, and they serve others to the detriment of themselves. They injure themselves. They hurt themselves in serving others. They can hurt themselves physically. They can hurt themselves emotionally. They can hurt themselves financially. They can hurt themselves in this desire to serve others and not take care of themselves. And you know what that is? That's kenodoxia. That's glory grasping, vain glory. Wanting to, you figure, I'm getting something. I'm somebody. And so the third point here, we have one, two, one, and then the third point because I can't add, is the cure. Verse 5. Have this mind among yourselves, which is in Christ Jesus. So he says, I want you to have this mind. When people talk about changing the world, this is what people talk about. They talk about getting good role models. They talk about better educational opportunities. They talk about creating stronger families. Those are all outward things. They're not bad things. They're good things. But they're simply outward things. They don't change hearts. And they can help. But even with those advantages, even with good role models, better education opportunities, and a strong family, people can struggle with rivalry and conceit and with vainglory. Because the cure has to be inward and outward. It has to be on two levels. And so here we see this dynamic. First, Christ did something from us, something from the outside, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, made himself nothing taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. He died for us. When we accept Christ as our Savior, which is, is, is God's best plan, that's his plan for us. When we accept Christ, as we acknowledge our sin. We see the life he lived. He lived it for us. We see the death he died. He died for us. We see the resurrection that was for us. And when we accept that, He says, this is what Jesus has done that comes into our lives. It's kind of this outside influence that then creates an inward change, and we become different because of it. In John 17, we are told that when, when we take Jesus into our lives, we get the glory. We get the doxa, he says, that the Son has. We get his glory. He did it for us, and we get his glory in our lives. And the inside changes. So when we go back to the very beginning of this, he says what? He says, if there's any encouragement of Christ, and of course there is because you've gotten the glory. If there's any comfort from love, of course there is because you've gotten the glory. Any participation of the Spirit, of course there is. You've got the glory. 
If you've accepted Christ as your Savior, you have the glory. Any affection and sympathy? He says, of course there is. It's very interesting. If you look at verse 6, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be kinoed. Kinodoxia, grasping for glory. Jesus wasn't grasping for glory. He had it, and he gave it up. He did the opposite. And he's saying, that's why I want you to be like Jesus. That's why I want you to be like Jesus. Because he was not a glory grasper. He was a glory releaser for our sake. So that now we have that glory. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this truth. Help us as we take it in that your word, you tell us your word does not return void. And so we trust you for that. This word will affect our lives if we allow it. Help us, help us as followers of Jesus Christ to become more like him. And as the spirit works in us and empowers us, we live in a way that honors and glorifies you. Help us to begin to think of others as more significant than ourselves. And as as we do that, Lord, the world is changed bit by bit. And that is your goal. And so, Lord, we thank you for giving us a part of that in Jesus' name. Amen.